May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Welcome to season three of Law Brief. And we're going to start out this season with a story ripped from the headlines. We're going to talk about the Theranos trial with the two partners who run our white-collar practice, Mike Grudberg and Robert Heim. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning, Richard, and hello, listeners. Robert, you with us uh, by telephone? I am. Thank you, Richard. Good morning. Well, we have started, or the world has started, a 13-week trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos. Mike, what's the case about? The case is essentially a fraud case, Rich. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard of Ms. Holmes and Theranos. It is a company, Theranos, a former company, I should say, that was engaged in the business of blood testing. Ms. Holmes, who was the only defendant on trial, dropped out of Stanford after her freshman or in the middle of her sophomore year to start this company. It was for a while seen as a potentially transformative technology. The idea was that one could, rather than take a venous draw from from somebody's arm with multiple vials of icky blood, you could simply stick a pipette in somebody's fingertip, take a simple drop of blood and complete a full panel of blood tests quickly and reliably. There was a proprietary machine called the Edison uh, that was supposed to accomplish this. And Ms. Holmes, in the early 2010s, became relatively celebrated, at least in the Silicon Valley world and and in the broader media, for the possibilities of this company, uh, visited the White House and and that sort of thing, and became sort of a Steve Jobs-like personality. I say that because she adopted the black turtleneck like Mr. Jobs, And as things started to go south for her and the company, she came in for a fair amount of ribbing about that. But I think everyone would agree that Theranos was a very high-flying company. And she became not only a celebrity, right? She became super rich. She became super rich, yes. And I guess that's the idea of dropping out of Stanford in your freshman year. The company was once valued, I think. It never went public, but it was once valued by the people who do these things, I think in the neighborhood of $10 billion, which... Uh, as a founder, certainly qualifies you uh, as super rich. Yeah. Uh, So what is the theme of the prosecution in this case? Well, well, the theme of the prosecution, I would say, as in most fraud cases, is a quite simple one. The defendant on trial, and and as we'll talk about later, there's another defendant, another senior manager in the company who will be tried separately. The people who ran the company uh, knew that their technology didn't work, but they told all relevant people including the media, uh, and two categories of victims. But the two theories of fraud are that investors in the company were misled about whether the technology worked in terms of its accuracy, i.e., did it get the blood tests right, and its reliability, whether those uh, results could be uh, repeatedly demonstrated uh, over a same sample. The, The defendant is accused of lying about revenue forecasts for the company, staging phony demonstrations of the technology, uh, misleading investors about whether FDA approval was required for this technology, concealing the fact that rather than using their miraculous new machine, uh, they were largely conducting these tests with third-party old-fashioned technology, and uh, also telling investors that other people in the healthcare industry were vouching for Theranos and its technology 
in ways that the government would allege they actually were not. Um, so there are basically two wire fraud conspiracies charged and substantive counts in, involving those investors and, and also a category of victims, the actual patients who received these blood tests through a joint venture with the Walgreens pharmacy chain and otherwise, basically the patients who delivered the blood samples and, and got inaccurate results were misled by the same category of, of misstatements. Yeah. Okay. Robert, what does Ms. Holmes have to say for herself and what do we expect to hear from the defense? Well, the defense in their opening statement laid out a few points. I think the primary issue that the defense is going to focus on is arguing that Ms. Holmes did not have the required intent to deceive people when they uh, present their defense. The prosecutors have the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt all the elements of the crime of wire fraud. And one of the elements is intent. And that means that Ms. Holmes had to act in a deliberate and knowing way to try to deceive the investors and the patients. What we've seen uh, as part of that so far in the trial, the first argument that Ms. Holmes and her lawyers are, are making is that as the CEO, you know, she was standing kind of at the 30,000 foot level at, at the company and was relying on the employees who worked at the company to provide her with information about how the tests were going and how the technology was working. So that the first prong of her defense is that she was really relying on other people. And there were PhDs and, and other very smart people that worked at the company. And she's going to say she relied on them. The, the second part of her uh, defense is related to uh, Ramesh uh, Balwani, who was former president and chief operating officer of the company and also uh, was Ms. Holmes's boyfriend for, for much of the relevant time frame. She has indicated she may be arguing that he um, abused her and had a very serious and high level of control over her, uh, which may have uh, led her not to really question him or the departments that he was running as much in detail as she would have otherwise done as the CEO. Okay, I want to get back to the Balwani point in a bit, but as to the first prong, Robert, this idea that she relied on others, I mean, that's kind of a common theme in this sort of case when you go after a C-suite person like the chief executive officer, this idea that I'm only the boss, I don't really know what's going on and rely on other people. So I'm not surprised to hear that as part of the defense mix here. All right, well, this trial is in the news and I guess is going to stay in the news. We're going to see some pretty prominent witnesses along the way. Isn't that right, Mike? Uh, that is, Rich. Uh, they, As part of the jury questionnaire here, they have published a witness list that I think includes more than 200 names, uh, some of them quite celebrated former cabinet officers, if there's such a thing as a famous lawyer, famous lawyers. Indeed, uh, this morning's uh, lawyer headlines bring news that David Boyce was mentioned in testimony by a former Theranos employee who testified yesterday, a whistleblower at the company, who, who essentially said that a private investigator approached her at her new job uh, and handed her what she perceived to be a threatening letter uh, from Mr. Boyce uh, and his firm relating to disparagement and potential leak of trade secrets of Theranos. But uh, Mr. Boyce is himself on the witness list, and we'll have to see uh, whether we hear from him or not. Right. And I guess there's a chance we might also hear from some prominent people like 
Henry Kissinger and James Mattis and Rupert Murdoch. Uh, they're all on the witness list. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing I would say as a caution to anyone who's getting tempted to fall in love with this case for its celebrity value, these witness lists are prepared primarily for the purpose of making sure that potential jurors understand everyone who might possibly testify. This is supposed to be a 13-week trial. That's the, that's the anticipated length. I've done a six-month trial. I've, I've done a five-month trial, and we never got close to 200. I mean, we got into the 50s, and, and that was longer than anybody wanted to sit there. But you shouldn't assume just because certain celebrities are on this list that anything about the likelihood of their actually appearing. You know, another interesting thing about jury selection in this case, Robert, if I understand correctly, they were looking for jurors who hadn't heard of Theranos and didn't know anything about the company. Is that right? Yes, the prosecutor and defense are both looking for jury members who have not previously heard of Ms. Holmes or uh, the company. And they're doing that because it's such a high-profile case. There was books written about the, the case. There's uh, TV shows. And the, the prosecution and the defense want jurors to really make their decision based on the evidence that comes in at trial and not from any preconceived notions of Ms. Holmes' guilt or innocence that they may have uh, previously um, learned about through these other uh, movies and books. I understand that notion, but there's something odd to me about looking for jurors who haven't picked up a newspaper in the last five years. I, I think that's a problem uh, in in a sense that if the juror is not aware of, of Ms. Holmes, uh, then it, it's going to be a situation where either they don't follow the news or maybe some other things are going on. And, you know, they have to weigh that against the, the value of, of having somebody that, that comes in basically with a, with a blank slate. Okay. And because we're, you know, the case is going to be tried to a jury, one of the tasks of the prosecution is to keep them interested and engaged and uh, to get them angry. Mike, how are they going to do that? Well, look, I think that um, it's no accident that, that this case involves both uh, a fraud on investors in the company, uh, investors to the tune of $150 million. A fraud is a fraud, and, and if you bribe somebody of their money by dishonesty, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of people they are. But, you know, the, the prosecution would, would not concede, Rich, that their project was to make jurors angry. But let's be realistic about it. The, the reason that there is a, a, a separate theory of the case as to actual users of the blood testing technology is to raise the, the specter and perhaps the reality of a real world and a, uh, and a life and limb impact from the deception here. Right. Well, let's think about that in stark human terms. It's one thing to put on the stand an investor who says, you know, I lost $200,000 in my stock portfolio because I bet on this company. It's another thing to put on the stand a patient who says, I got a incorrect diagnosis from this blood test and it had serious medical consequences. And I think that's why that side of the case is very much at issue here, right? Yeah, I, I guess the one thing I would say, and, and some grist for the defense's mill in pushing back against the medical case, defense lawyers like complexities. They like to be able to tell a story much more subtle and much more complicated than the prosecution would have you believe at first blush. And 
one of the things that Ms. Holmes has going for her is that nobody's going to testify that Elizabeth Holmes got on the phone with me and said I should choose her blood test over somebody else's. Hey, Robert, Elizabeth Holmes, for her part, she's got to get the jury to like her. I assume she's going to take the stand here. And then she's got to convince the jury that she's a victim, right? That's right. Elizabeth Holmes is going to have a challenge here in really persuading the jury to come along and and see things from her perspective. And she faces the additional challenge that she she was a very charismatic uh, CEO, very well known. And for all of her media appearances and so forth, she was really out in front and and the face of, of the company. So now in her defense, in the criminal case, she's really shifting gears and trying to distance herself from the company and what was going on in terms of the level of details in in the case. But she's clearly a a very uh, well-spoken person, knows how to sell, knows how to present things. And, you know, she she may make a very good witness. So the prosecution has to really think carefully about how they're going to cross-examine her and um, really bring it back to that this is a, a simple case of fraud and misrepresentations that were made by the company and by Ms. Holmes to investors and to patients. It's funny, the fact that she's a highly competent individual and a great salesperson is a little bit at odds with this theory of hers that she was under the control of another person. So let's talk about that aspect of the case, Robert. She's going to say she was under the control of this guy, Balwani. Yes. So her defense team has indicated that they uh, may be making the argument that Ms. Holmes was under the control of of Mr. Balwani, who she had a a romantic relationship with for about 12 years. And um, the indications are is that she's going to testify that he was very controlling, very emotionally abusive. And that, you know, as as a result, she was either less inclined to question what he was saying about what was going on at the company, or she was afraid of him and uh, wasn't able to investigate. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the defense uh, presents uh, those arguments. And one thing, you know, that she is going to argue, she said, or at least her defense team said, is that there was a significant age difference. You know, when she started the company, she was, you know, just out of dropping out of college and Mr. Balwani was many years older than her. And, you know, as a result, uh, she's going to say that he was a very controlling and uh, a micromanager. And, and she just didn't have the ability like a typical CEO would have to to really drill down into to what he was saying and, and how he was presenting what was going on at the company. All right. And that sort of leads to my nerdy lawyer issue of the day, which is Balwani is also going to go to trial on this matter. But I gather the judge in this case severed the trial, meaning he ordered separate trials for Holmes and Bowani. Do I have that right? Taking the nerdy lawyer reference as a cue to speak, yes, you do have that right. (laughs) Uh, It it actually was Balwani's motion uh, to sever the case, though I, I don't think there's much doubt here that it was a preference of each defendant to go it alone. It gives each defendant the opportunity to point fingers at the other, and that's where I think the mischief is. I mean, doesn't it lead to a situation where Elizabeth Holmes can say in her trial it's all Balwani's fault, have the jury agree and acquit her, and then Balwani can say in his trial that it's all Elizabeth Holmes's fault, 
and a different jury can agree with him and acquit him, doesn't it leave open that possibility? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess from the defense lawyer perspective, it should be that easy, haha. But look, the judge uh, under the federal rules of criminal procedure has pretty broad discretion to decide uh, whether to sever cases in the interest of fairness. It's relatively rare to get one of these things granted. Usually the severance issue relates to some evidence being presented against defendant one to the effect that he made some kind of statement implicating himself. And, uh, you know, that obviously spills over to defendants two through N, and they don't have the ability to cross-examine defendant one because he ain't going to be available and it would be kind of messy to cross-examine him anyway. Here, because of the unique issues uh, related to the relationship and the kind of emotional food fight that would break out uh, if they were on trial together, I think the judge did get it right. I mean, the government seems to be complaining here that this is somehow engineered, but it's not, quote, engineering, close quote, for both defendants to want a fair trial. And, you know, Balwani will get his turn. But you are right. I mean, both defendants will have the opportunity to point to the empty chair. Well, I'll play devil's advocate here, Michael. To me, it leads to a distinct possibility of inconsistent results. It means that you don't get all of the facts on the table at either trial. It is woefully inefficient because now we've got to have two trials, which uh, you and I and other taxpayers are paying for instead of one. And uh, on top of it all, when Balwani goes to trial, now he's going to be looking for jurors who still haven't heard of Theranos, if there will be such a creature. I say this from, I won't say bitter, generally bitter experience. This particular is neither here nor there on the bitterness scale, but you would be surprised how easy it is to find people who don't know nothing from nothing about what many others consider to be a celebrated case. I mean, the Enron jury down in Houston, that was the biggest story in the history of Houston, Texas, but they found people who basically said, yeah, I heard of it. The baseball stadium's named after it, but I don't know anything about it. And sure, I can be fair. But but uh, look, to come back to your inefficiencies point, I hear you. But a, a lot of innocent people are, are sitting in prison because of efficiencies. When you've got a, a 30 defendant trial, you can get clobbered by evidence that comes in against other people that has nothing to do with you. So uh, inefficient it may be, but but the Constitution is inefficient too sometimes. Robert, these kind of cases very rarely get to trial at all. Isn't that right? Uh, That's right, because with prosecutions, one of the big uh, weapons they have in terms of plea negotiations is the very long sentences that uh, white-collar criminals can can draw if they go to trial and, and they're convicted. So usually this is a big bargaining chip for criminal prosecutors, where if a defendant pleads guilty, they're likely to get a substantially shorter sentence from from the judge that's doing the sentencing and there's some uh, discretion among the prosecutors about how they ultimately you know present the case to to the court and what sort of recommendations they're giving to the judge for sentencing but it it is very rare for a case like this to go to trial the vast majority of criminal cases in federal court uh, settle with plea bargains and that's one of the reasons that this particular trial has been uh, generating so much uh, media attention is because they don't really uh, come along that often Okay, well, we're going to stay tuned in to this trial as it goes forward. And uh, maybe when it's all over, we'll have an episode to recap it all. Could you guys tell me a little bit 
I know you're co-heads of our white collar group. Tell us about that group and what we do here at Tartakrinsky and Trogan. Robert, I'll, I'll dive in the pool first. I, I, I've now been uh, at Tartar uh, for the better part of five years, having, and my three bears story grows very tiresome, but I was at a little firm for most of my career, uh, a white collar boutique, if you'll forgive the expression, of 15 to 20 lawyers for most of the time that I was there doing trials, representing witnesses and in investigations, advising companies about what would come along. That, that's what I do here. That's what we do here. Uh, as Robert can tell you, he has more of an SEC expertise, having been a lawyer for the government there for many years. But we represent companies and individuals, companies even at the level of just being inconvenienced or brought up short by a subpoena arriving from a grand jury. That is something that needs to be handled completely and handled well, even if it's not about your company. And one can often help the company by negotiating a reasonable outcome that requires the production of something less than the subpoena asked for in the first instance, just to be reasonable. Yes, and Rich, we have a really strong um, white-collar and regulatory enforcement group at Tartar Krinsky. As Michael uh, said, he has vast experience in, in criminal as well as governmental civil investigations. I was formerly the assistant regional director of the Securities and Exchange Commission here in New York in the enforcement program. And we have a group of other partners and associates that are part of the white-collar and regulatory enforcement group that have very significant amount of experience, uh, both in financial services cases as well as other cases. And uh, we really work with a very broad array of clients, people and companies that work in Wall Street, including broker-dealers and, and asset managers, entrepreneurs and business people. And uh, our, our practice is very exciting. Um, it's growing and just a really strong bench of talent that we deploy on behalf of our clients. All right. Well, that's great. Usually we end these episodes with a closing argument, but uh, we're recording this about a week into the trial, and I think they're 12 weeks away from closing arguments. So instead, we're going to take predictions. Conviction or no conviction? What do you think, Robert? My money is going to be with the prosecutors, at least based on what I know so far. I, I think the argument that Ms. Holmes didn't really know what was uh, going on in detail with her company is going to be very tough for her to win in front of the jury. Mike, what's your prediction? Well, Rich, I, I think that it's hard to go against the percentages. The prosecution wins almost all of the time. Here, I, I think that uh, her defense might have more vitality than people are giving credit for. I think that the facts are probably there to support something toxic in the relationship. But the real challenge here is for her to do a night and day switch from master of the universe who knew all about this transformative product to someone who was deferring boyfriend or not to uh, other people being in charge of her baby. That's a real challenge and, and uh, I think perhaps an insurmountable one for her. All right. And uh, I'm going to prognosticate too. I don't have the level of expertise of you two guys, so I'm going to be the contrarian and I'm going to say she will be acquitted with reasonable doubt carrying the day, as they say. Mike, if she is convicted, what are the range of possible penalties here. Let me be tiresome and give a little bit of meat on that bone for our listeners. It is accurately reported in the press that she faces 20 years in prison. That is the statutory cap. For the last 30 some odd years, there are, in addition to, to statutory brackets, 
There is a sentencing guideline system where through a Rube Goldberg process that combines your criminal history, of which she has none, with elements of your case, largely in fraud cases driven by how much investors or patients lost, basically chart on an XY axis what the sentence ought to be. The guidelines in a case like this, where the if she gets convicted on the investment fraud, would put her in the neighborhood given micro adjustments of about a 10-year recommended sentence, roughly estimating. I would guess that even if convicted of trial, she'd get something less than that. Federal judges aren't huge fans of the guidelines. Most are not. They are required under current Supreme Court law to consider those guidelines for what they're worth, but they are basically free to impose what they consider to be a reasonable sentence based on more generalized statutory factors. If I had to guess here, you know, in in large part, the the numbers are driven by the investor fraud. I can't imagine that the, the patients who went out of pocket themselves get up to a very high number. If she's convicted on the investor fraud, that will push the guidelines high, but I think artificially high. I see a sentence of five half dozen years uh, as being uh, reasonable here. And, uh, you know, it's possible. Celebrity cases uh, always have the make an example for the rest of the world element to them. But 10 years is a long time. I don't see it getting that high. Robert, do you uh, agree with that? Yeah, I agree with Mike's uh, analysis. I I think with all the different moving factors that Mike um, analyzed, that that would be a reasonable sentence to expect if she is found guilty at trial. All right. Robert Hein, Michael Brunberg, thank you guys very much. Great to have you on and talk about this topic. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.